Hello and welcome to episode two of Audio Pelago, a podcast about Indonesia from New Mandala. I'm Liam Gammon and I'm the editor of New Mandala. And this month, our topic is Indonesia Leaks, a new investigative journalism project that's just broken a pretty sensational story about alleged police misconduct inside the Corruption Eradication Commission, or the KPK. I'll be talking to Eni Mulia from Indonesia Leaks and Dr. Jackie Baker from Murdoch University about the Indonesia Leaks project and some of the broader issues of doing investigative journalism in Indonesia today. But first, we're going to talk about the latest in politics. And to do that, I'm here with Dr. Bohanuddin Mutadi, who's the executive director of Indikator Politik Indonesia, a lecturer at the State Islamic University of Jakarta, and who recently got his PhD from the Department of Political and Social Change at the ANU. Uh, and Burhan, I believe you've got a forthcoming book based on your PhD thesis, which was about vote buying, right? Yeah, basically, I'm now revising my thesis and transform into a book still long to go to be published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Still on vote buying, but I will locate my... Uh, vote buying uh, in the context of new uh, democracies like Indonesia. And joining us over Skype from Singapore is Dr. Eve Warburton, who's a visiting fellow at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute and who's also a recent graduate from the Department of Political and Social Change. Eve, how are you going? Good. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Um, now, the reason I've got the both of you here is to chat a little bit about some uh, survey research you've got going on about perceptions of inequality in the Indonesian electorate. But first, uh, I just want to talk about what everyone wants to hear about, which is uh, the horse race. So let's begin uh, with that, because technically we're about three weeks into a presidential election campaign. And I got to say, it seems kind of subdued. It doesn't feel like we're in this really intense political campaign yet. I mean, Jokowi obviously has been campaigning nonstop for nearly five years now. Um, Prabowo seems hmm. to be taking it easy. And in fact, <laughs> some people in his own party coalition have come out and said that he's a bit stangahati. Uh, hmm. And, you know, based on my observations, that's kind of spot on. I mean, the Prabowo campaign really is the, the Sandy Uno show. So, I mean, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, it is true that the publics in Indonesia seems to see that Prabowo came not really hard to campaign and the survey that we conducted, Jokowi's electability is still high. So in September 2018, just a few weeks before national campaign was started, 57.7% of respondents said that they would pick uh, Jokowi Maruf and around 32.5% said that they would choose uh, Prabowo Sandi. But, you know, uh, around 25% of those still uh, still can be considered as swing voters, so they can change their mind. So it is still long to go. Uh, And if we look at the numbers, basically uh, even Prabowo and Sandiaga Uno campaign still have a chance to win the election. Because if you look at deeply in the numbers, uh, first, it is true that 72% of respondents said that they approved Jokowi as a president. But there is a significant proportion of those who satisfied with Jokowi but declined to vote. So it's the gap is around 14% of those who approved Jokowi in office but 
didn't want to vote for him. It's a significant numbers, basically. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that really the one thing that really stands out to me about all these polls we're getting on Jokowi is that. Like I said, I mean, he's campaigning nonstop, yeah. but he can't quite get his electability yes. rating in That's a zone correct. where he can be safe for and re-election. Even if we look at the trend, Djokovic's electability, if we compare with February 2018 survey, continues on a downward trend. Of course, uh, despite a slight decrease, you know, the the trend or the the uh, what is it the 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 change between february and september fell within margin of error but look at the trend the trend was slightly decreased for jokowi we have what is it, six months to go anything can happen and i don't think that jokowi will win easy because of his running mate basically so we Look at from so, so Maruf Amin, you think yeah. was actually disadvantageous electorally. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. so in our survey, those respondents who agreed Maruf Amin as Jokowi's running mate well below those who agreed Sandiaga Uno as Prabowo's running mate. And the second one, there is overlapping support. So, you know, okay, Maruf Amin was a spiritual leader of NU, but Jokowi basically has already strong support among uh, NU followers. So if we if he pick Ma'ruf, basically there is no electoral incentive. And the second one, this is very important. The second one, uh, Kiai Ma'ruf is famously known as conservative cleric who played a significant role behind the blasphemy fatwa against Ahok. Uh, during uh, Jakarta uh, local election last year. And Ahok is seen by many as the representative of non-Muslim. And non-Muslim and minority group basically uh, was the best voters for Jokowi 2014. So based on our exit poll, Liam, based on our exit poll 2014, among Muslim respondents who voted for Jokowi just only 48.6%. And Prabowo among Muslim respondent received around 51.4%. So if the election 2014 was just only held among Muslim population, the president of Indonesia now was Prabowo Subianto. What I'm saying is that if non-Muslim and minorities group upset with the choice of Jokowi to pick Uh, Kiai Ma'ruf as his running mate and let's say they would not vote for Prabowo they just stay at home during local ele- during a presidential election next year it it would be a big problem for Jokowi cool all right so that's my that's uh, that's enough horse that's enough horse race <laughs> all right topic two. Mm. You guys are doing a survey on public perceptions of inequality in Indonesia and um So this is an important one because obviously the big debate in Indonesian politics for, you know, at least since the fall of Suharto has been the oligarchy debate. To what extent does concentration of wealth in Indonesia coexist with democracy and undermine the quality of democracy? But um, this survey, I mean, what are the most interesting parts? 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, just stepping back a little bit, um, yeah, surprisingly, there haven't actually been a lot of surveys on Indonesians' perceptions um, of uh, income distribution and economic inequality. So we just wanted to ask Indonesians, you know, how they felt about it, whether they thought Indonesia was an economically just society or not, uh, really to see whether the kind of campaign that we'll probably see from um, from Prabowo will have traction or not. Um, and then the second reason was 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 because, in fact, globally, there's there's been a renewed interest in the relationship between inequality and democracy, sort of in the context of, of sort of a rise in um, anti-democratic authoritarian populism in uh, sort of Western and, and non-Western democracies around the world. And so we wanted to sort of look at that relationship in the Indonesian context where very little work has been done. Um, so we asked a bunch of questions, but I think probably the most interesting one for us and the most interesting to talk about now would be would be this question, which was phrased like this. We thought, we asked Indonesians, do you think income distribution is fair, very fair, uh, unfair or very unfair? And it was really interesting because the responses were almost equally divided. So we about 40% of Indonesians felt like the income distribution was fair or very fair, and about 42% said it was unfair or very unfair, and about 12% said they didn't really know. Um, and so that's immediately interesting because what we want to know then is who are the people who think it's unfair, what kind of people are they, what are their sort of you know, demographic characteristics, and what might help us to explain this kind of divided opinion or divided perception of income, of income distribution. Um, so just with a massive caveat that this is, we really just got hold of this data. So <laughs> the conclusions that we're drawing now are like super, super tentative, but basically if we look at sort of demographics, what we find is that, you know, your age, your gender, even your religion, so Muslim versus non-Muslim, these things don't really seem to matter. They're kind of e evenly sort of distributed between fair and unfair. What we did find was sort of slightly higher numbers of educated Indonesians feel like income distribution is unfair, but then when it comes to income, you know, when you, when you said the people who are slightly wealthier are more likely to feel that income distribution is fair, which I guess is is intuitive. Uh, but again, it's not a really strong association. Um, so what we thought was that we should then be testing, you know, if, if demographics don't matter, if, person, if a person's sort of um, religion, age, gender, income doesn't necessarily tell us a lot about why they perceive uh, income distribution to be unfair or fair, then maybe it's people's political preferences yeah. that are driving their sense of economic injustice. And, um, you know, this is a question that previous surveys, and there have been, as Bodhan mentioned, a couple that have looked at inequality, so like the World Value Survey, which does surveys all around the world um, every five years, I think it is, and they've done they've done They've done two in Indonesia before, and they did one last year. And they ask a little bit about inequality. Um, donors and international sort of funding agent, the donor agencies have done surveys in Indonesia before, but none of them have really treated inequality as anything more than a socioeconomic problem. They haven't really, or at least they haven't publicly released any data that they have on a sort of the relationship between people's political preferences um, and their sense of economic inequality. So. That's what we wanted to do. Um, now, you know, in Indonesia, we don't have that kind of traditional, conventional sort of left-right divide. Um, so what we did is we thought, okay, well, if political partisanship matters in how people think about inequality, maybe it's a Jokowi Prabowo thing. Because <laughs> um, yeah. that's, that, that's one of the most polarizing, I guess, you know, political um, issues. Do you, you know, are, are you pro Prabowo or are you pro Jokowi? Um, so, so that's how we tested partisanship. Um, and then we also wanted to look at people's preferences around democracy. So do people 
support democracy? Do they do they trust democratic institutions? Um, and so, and and that's a relevant question in the context of this broader issue about the rise in authoritarian populism and democracies around the world. And certainly, since the rise of Prabowo, that's that's been an issue in the Indonesian context as well. So, um, and the argue and the, the the hypothesis there is that what some studies suggest is that people who see income distribution as unfair, who harbour this kind of economic grievance, are also more likely to be dissatisfied with their government, but with the democratic system itself. Uh, and perhaps even hold anti-system, anti-elite and kind of populist attitudes. So um, we wanted to, to, to look at that as well. And we, we did find, and again, this is like super, super tentative, but when we ran some cross-tabs, what we did find was quite a strong association, in fact, between feeling that the income distribution in Indonesia is unfair and support for Prabowo yeah. and support for the Ganti president movement or the change the president movement, which you talked about on your previous podcast with Tom and Usman. Uh, we found that people who are expressing uh, or who feel that economic distribution is unfair are more likely to uh, express a lack of trust in democratic institutions, uh, a lack of satisfaction with the democratic um, status quo. Um, so, and so I think that's actually a really interesting finding because, you know, what it tells us is that we shouldn't necessarily just be thinking about people's experience or understanding of income inequality in terms of their own economic situation. You know, it's not just sort of poor people or, or kind of people in the middle classes who feel like they lack mobility. It's not just them who are, or it's not actually helping us to understand how people see inequality in Indonesia. Instead, we should be thinking about it potentially as a partisan issue. Um, yeah, I don't know if Budhai wants to add anything there. But, <laughs> just, I might just yeah. jump in here. So yeah. that, that finding is interesting because... Yeah. I think there are I think there are probably two main ways to interpret a finding like that. First is to say that, oh well, you know, Prabowo with this rhetoric around economic justice and exploitation of Indonesia's natural wealth and yeah. uh, support for the downtrodden is collecting the support of people who already cared about inequality and economic justice. Mm. Or, and I think probably this is actually more likely. If you like Prabowo, you're more likely to conclude that Jokowi's economy or Jokowi's Indonesia is is unjust. Um, right. And you can think of this phenomenon you get in the United States or in Australia, where you have a change of government from you know liberal to Labor mm. or Republican to Democrat, and suddenly the subjective assessments of partisan voters uh, towards the mm. economy just flips around entirely. Burhan. You know, I know these data are prelim yeah. preliminary, but is there anything to suggest that the partisanship is really at the core of that? Yeah, you are right to mention the issue of causality here. But as if mentioned earlier, this is very new. Uh, we have just uh, run the data a few days ago, so we haven't uh, run a further statistical test to look at, uh, you know, the causality problem. But uh, what I'm saying, based on the available uh, statistical tests that we have already run here, is that demographic variables do not matter at all. If we distinguish the respondent based on religious uh, group, no matter. But if we look at those Muslims who attended 212 or who supported the movement against Ahok, they likely to perceive that the economy is unfair <laughs> so mm. so it's based on you know uh, if if we look at muslim respondent who uh, 
didn't support the movement mm. against Ahok, they likely to perceive that the the uh, the economic condition or the income distribution is fair. So it's mm. you know it's very political basically. But I'm what I'm saying is that first the effect of income as one of uh, socio-economic variable is significantly uh, correlated with this perception income but this effect exists mm. with political preferences so the effect of income independent of each other uh, contribute to explain along with uh, the effect of political preference on uh, perceive uh, perceive uh, fairness of income distribution but when we look at the explanatory power the power of political preference is more is is much higher than the income effect so basically we are right to conclude that uh, in terms of Indonesian case basically political partisanship that really matters in explaining uh, whether the economy is fair or not. Mm. I mean, yeah. sorry, here's so Eve. I mean, New Mandela played host to this, um, I guess, conversation between a whole bunch of uh, contributors after the 2017 election in Jakarta about the mm. relative influence of, uh, you know, identity politics versus uh, concerns over socioeconomic inequality in turning people against uh, Ahok. And... I mean, you and I had a stab at this at, at the site saying, well, yeah. I mean, how can, you, how can you possibly disentangle the two? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but, okay, um, I think we're going to have to draw a line under that. Well, such. A, sorry, no, go I, on, go on. So just two points quickly. So the first point uh, is that, yes, exactly. I mean, that, that's so difficult to disentangle. And so I think that, you know, after, and I have to apologise, I, I cut out during the initial conversation you guys were having about Maruf and Sandy, but, you know, when Maruf was appointed, there was mm. this sort of immediate response from parts of... Uh, the sort of commentary at both Indonesia and and the foreign press, basically saying, okay, well, that's identity politics done. You know, Jokowi has uh, brought in this sort of conservative Muslim and therefore identity politics won't be an issue in 2019. But I think it will be everywhere. Oh, and, and instead we'll be focusing on the economy and economic justice. Well, mm. econo- when people talk about economic justice, whether it's going to be Ma'ruf or whether it's going to be Prabowo and Sandy, they're going to be implicitly talking about the concentration of wealth and they're going to be implicitly talking about the uh, the control of the ethnic Chinese tycoons over the Indonesian economy. And I think the difference this time is that both sides will be talking about that and identity politics will be everywhere rather than being sort of uh, the kind of, uh, rather than being the tool that's mobilised just by Prabowo. Mm. And then the second thing I want to say quickly is that, you know, if we look at this data what we kind of see, I think, is that well, I think when it's helping us really to also get an, uh, an understanding of this constituency within Indonesia, which I think is about 25 to 30 percent of the population who are unsatisfied with economic distribution as it stands, who are actually pretty unsatisfied with how democracy is run uh, and who support and who support Prabowo and who seem to hold quite um extreme religious views as well and not, not all of them but some of them yeah. and and i think that um we're only now beginning to appreciate how central that kind of feeling of economic inequality and injustice is to that constituency's political preferences uh, that doesn't answer the question of you know do they express this and feel like this because they always have and probably has been is giving them giving those voices a political expression or whether 
um, or whether Prabowo has kind of created a narrative that, you know, has attracted them or, or whether that even matters. I'm not even sure. <laughs> no, totally. That's and, and, that's, of, yeah. and that's where that, that's where that uh, question of causation becomes yeah, really yeah. important. Yeah, it's really important. <laughs> are, they, are, are these sentiments just a product of their partisanship and their distaste for Jokowi and these people are going to sort of relax once yeah. Jokowi is out of the picture? Or is there just this permanently pissed off section of the electorate yeah. that is going to attach itself to any sort of populist authoritarian that comes uh, out of the woodwork? Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, just very few comments on that. So I got the sense the second option is more reasonable. Of course, we need to test further statistical mm. examination on that. But we have a few questions on whether or not uh, respondent agree if the government uh, increase uh, the oil prices, for example. It's really interesting. Uh, in our survey in September, PDIP constituent who agree with this idea are much bigger than those when we ask the same question during SPY administration. Huh. And uh, as you expected, the Democrat constituent um, were more likely to disagree with this idea. It's really contrasting if we ask this question during SPY hmm. administration. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> so it's depend on uh, who is the ruling party and who is the government party and who is the president. But of course, we need to test uh, on, you know, the causation issue, especially on the perception of income distribution. Yeah, yeah. right. So um, hopefully we haven't uh, confused our listeners with too many percentages and numbers here. <laughs> yeah. But if, if, if so if, if uh, I believe you guys may be presenting some of this data soon. Yeah. If, yes, yes. If. I, sorry, I should have explained that. So this project was sort of motivated by a... Uh, well, that's not true. I've always wanted to do this project, <laughs> and Borhan said he would do it with me, so that was awesome. So, uh, but also, Melbourne University, University of Melbourne is holding what looks to be like a really interesting conference in a couple of weeks on inequality in Indonesia uh, down at the Asia Institute down there. And uh, so I'll be presenting this paper, and there'll be a, heaps and heaps of other really fascinating-looking papers um, sort of taking on the issue of inequality from a whole different sort of uh, disciplinary angles and that is, I believe, the 1st and 2nd of November at the University of Melbourne? Shameless plug. Yep, University of Melbourne. Okay, well, look it up at the UniMel website and you'll get all the details. So. Good luck, if with your presentation. Okay, now, that's enough of frivolous things. Let's talk about a serious issue, which is Ratna Sarampayat. <laughs> we can't wrap it up without talking about this. If if you haven't turned on a TV or um, read a newspaper in Indonesia for the past few weeks, um, several weeks ago, Ratna Sarampayat, uh, through a friend of hers, and we should say Ratna Sarampayat is this sort of actress turned uh, anti-Jokowi activist who has a long history of you know human rights activism and so on, but has gotten weird in the uh, the later stages of her career, I'd say. Um, this story started to be spreading around by some of her friends on Twitter that she had been beaten up by unknown assailants at the uh, car park at the airport in Bandung. No police report was made and she basically disappeared and we, we found out about this through um, various social media postings. She had a um, meeting with Prabowo and basically all these Prabowo campaign proxies started saying about, oh, this is an absolute abomination, how terrible this is. Um, People who are engaged in activism against the government are being harassed and beaten up 
shame on Jokowi, blah, blah, blah. And I half-jokingly on the day this news broke <laughs> said, you know what, this seems like an awful lot of trouble to go to to cover up a dodgy facelift. And lo <laughs> and behold, it. yeah, you yeah, and I have, I have the WhatsApp messages to prove it. And it turns out it was exactly that. She got a dodgy facelift. And obviously, I don't know what happened, made up this insane story about being, being beaten up by thugs. Um, yeah. Which it's important to say, I don't think Ratna actually, herself actually said this on social media. She obviously had some rather gullible friends um, spread the story for her. And at first glance, it's, it's easy to sort of laugh it up about this and say that this is ridiculous. And I mean, make no mistake, almost everything about this story is ridiculous. But I think there are <laughs> a couple of serious issues in play here, which is the fact that Ratna is now being investigated for spreading fake news, basically. She's being prosecuted under the UUITE, which is the Electronic Transactions Act. And yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what else to say, uh, apart from the fact that this is, seems to me, a pretty obvious case of the opposition being harassed. Um, am I being unfair there? Do, do, do you think this is concerning? Okay, it's really hard to have sympathy for the opposition in this circumstance because, okay, fair enough, you get a bad plastic surgery job. Why not claim political persecution as your excuse for looking like a swollen... <laughs> <laughs> like but, like but, the victim of a beating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so it's it's comedic, it's weird, it's absurd, but it's also incredibly irresponsible of her and of the people and of the people within Prabowo's team. And I guess the one thing I would say in defense of the Chikoi government here is that political tensions are quite high between the two camps and sort of to claim that she was physically hurt by pro Jokowi packs or whoever, whoever she was claiming, you know, sort of Orang Yang Dikanal, like just sort of people from the Jokowi side, it's a quite a serious accusation. And so I think that's why the response has been very serious from the Jokowi government. Um, but at the same time, to use that law to put her in prison, to drag all these other people through the court system that we, you know, it, it looks like it's they've got they're going too far, a step too far, and it also looks like the actions of a deeply insecure administration and insecure president. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think you make a good point. Yes, look, there are social costs to having these yeah. uh, hoax news stories being spread around the place. At the same time, it is such an overreaction, and, and it is a, it, is. it is part of a pattern of overreaction. And I'm thinking, you yeah. know, Ahmad Dani, for instance, yeah. uh, the, right. the rock star turned, again, equally loudmouth Prabowo supporter, is now being, uh, is now a Tersanka, a, a suspect yeah. for, uh, I think it was... For uh, minor crime, basically. Not crime, even. <laughs> well, it's, it's, crim- it's criminal defamation because he described yeah. some um, protesters who were protesting the Tagarganti president movement <laughs> as idiots. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that is really, ex- that is extraordinarily over the top. I mean, I think that that case is is sort of for me is just clearly overreached by a paranoid government that's willing to use sort of illiberal laws to kind of um, uh, I don't know what what were they doing? Are they just trying to make an example out of kind of irri- fringe irritants? Um, uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that the, the Ratner case was sort of a bit more serious, but um, but it is. You're right. There are just more and more cases of where the Jacobi administration uh, sort of goes to these lengths to kind of silence these sort of fringe irritants and makes itself look like this sort of paranoid, semi-authoritarian regime when it does that. And that's the odd thing. I mean, it doesn't have... (laughs) 
to the extent that the Jokowi administration is chilling free speech, it's actually not being heavy-handed enough to actually really chill free speech uh, on, on the mm. part of these anti-Jokowi activists. And what it ends up doing is basically looking like it's engaging in petty harassment of, of yeah. Yeah, annoying people, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, that's yeah, that. as you see that, uh, it's just like 2014 presidential election. So we have just only two options in the ballot, uh, either Jokowi or Prabowo. So for many people in Indonesia, it's like uh, choosing the lesser of two evil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Um, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks. April 2017, in an office at the Corruption Eradication Commission, or KPK, in Jakarta. Two police officers who'd been seconded to the KPK are caught on CCTV, applying correction fluid and tearing out pages from a red notebook that had been seized as evidence as part of a bribery case against an Indonesian businessman. So what information was in that notebook, and who might want to get rid of it, and why? Well, to answer that and a whole lot of other questions, I talked recently to Annie Mulia and Dr. Jackie Baker. Annie Mulia is the executive director of Perhimpunan Pengembangan Media Nusantara, an NGO focused on boosting the skills and capacity of Indonesian media outlets. More importantly for our conversation, she's also one of the organisers of Indonesia Leaks, which is a new online whistleblowing platform that helped Indonesian media outlets break the Red Notebook story. We're joined on Skype by Dr. Jackie Baker, who's a lecturer in Southeast Asian Studies at Murdoch University. Jackie's research focuses on the political economy of the Indonesian security sector, and she's writing a book based on her research into the flow of illicit monies within the Indonesian police force. New Mandala readers will also know her as one of the editors of our 2014 Indonesian election coverage. Here's Annie Mulia and Dr. Jackie Baker. Jackie and Annie, uh, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. Oh, hi, Liam. I'm happy to be here in this program. Wonderful to be here, Liam. So, um, Annie, I might just start out with a, with a pretty basic question up front. So, how does Indonesia Leaks work? And, I mean, what kind of gap in the media landscape were you and your colleagues hoping to fill with uh, the Indonesia Leaks project? Okay. Indonesia Leaks, or you can visit indonesialeaks.id, actually is the name of a secure platform for anyone who wants to report about crimes involving public interest. Every witness of a crime can send documents, data, and information with a guarantee of anonymity. Uh, Those who can access the contents of the whistleblowing platform are the media that are members of Indonesia Leaks. If all has been verified, the journalist team will work on various other investigative reporting stages such as digging and checking facts and evidence, of course, uh, interviews, confirmation, etc. until the stage of writing the reports. So, so which media outlets are, are sort of uh, involved in the Indonesia Leaks Consortium? There are nine uh, media outlets, including uh, Business Indonesia, Tempo.co, uh, The Jakarta Post, and uh, KBR, the radio. So Indonesia Leaks's uh, first story is has come to be known as the Bukumera controversy. So just briefly, for any listeners who haven't uh, read up on the um, Bukumera controversy, I mean, 
what are the basics of what Indonesia Leaks has helped these outlets report? Yeah, actually, uh, the report tells about an act of destruction of evidence inside the Anti-Corruption Commission or KPK. It was allegedly carried out by two KPK investigators from the Indonesian National Police. It is a red book, so it is called Buku Merah. Mm. Contained actually a financial transaction of the flow of funds from Basuki Hariman's cattle import bribery case. So, so Basuki Hariman was was the, the businessman, right, who was um, prosecuted for bribing a constitutional court judge. He was a, yeah, a beef that, importer, it, right? It yeah. was the case, uh, yes. You, you, yeah, you are true. Uh, now they are in jail already. So in April 2017, uh, this Buku Merah was torn down by a number of pages. So there were nine pages that were torn down contained actually records of the flow funds to dozens of people, including a number of public officials, one of which allegedly flowed to the head of Jakarta Metropolis at the time, and now is uh, the current chief of police, Tito Karnavian. Now, this actually this case, the destruction of evidence case, has been processed and investigated by the KPK internal examiner, who later then stated that the two investigators were guilty and violated the code of ethics. The decision on the results of the internal KPK examination is to return the two investigators to their original agency. Which, which is the police force, I think it's yes, important to mention. Because yeah, uh, much of the KPK sort of investigative team is made up of police officers who are seconded, right? Yes, uh, that's true. Well, by looking at these actions, actually uh, it is necessary for the KPK to proceed to the criminal law process because the act was categorized as an obstruction of justice to the process of investigating corruption cases. But the case just vanished like that. Uh, the two KPK investigators who had been returned to the police for a year ago currently are still active on duty and even get promotion. The the uh, the destruction of evidence it was of course the the basis of the report. But the uh, the really really explosive part of this story has been this allegation of the flow of funds to uh, senior officials, including allegedly the um, former head of the Jakarta um, police force. Uh, Jackie, we've been here before, haven't we? I mean, there has been investigative reporting before about alleged payments from business people to senior police officers. So I wonder if you could um, give us a bit of context on this, because you've done a lot of research on the flows of money and illicit finance within the police force. What has your research suggested about some of the relationships between business people and senior police force in in post-Sahato Indonesia? My my research was done kind of early on in the transition from authoritarian to democratic Indonesia. And what I was interested in was what was this new role for the Indonesian police. And I went in ostensibly to Indonesia to study police reform. And what I came out having investigated was these relations between capital and police, which were just emerging, in fact, flourishing in these early years of democratic Indonesia. And so what it alerted me what to was the way that policing in Indonesia is part and parcel of making material claims to enrich the policer. And so my argument in my forthcoming book is that 
under the Suharto's Indonesia, the military took the principal role in policing, which enabled them to be front and centre in terms of relationships with capital and um, obtain um, material flows as a result, so enrich themselves as a result. Um, in the post-Suharto era, the military sort of were pushed back to barracks and on the ground, what we saw was uh, military capital relationships having to shift in order to accommodate this new role for the police. So what this means is that where capital was once directly targeting the military in terms of material flows, we might call them bribes, but there were also uh, gifts and promotions and all sorts of types of material gains. Uh, in the post-Suharto era, the police become a major recipient as well of these material flows. In my research at the time, um, the Indonesian police budget was very, very low. It is far lower than what we see today. So at the time, I think in 1998, the Indonesian police budget was something like 9 trillion. From somewhere like 9 trillion rupiah in 1998 to 120 trillion in 2019. That's proposed amount. So at the time when I was looking at the Indonesian police, we saw these emergent relationships with capital and they were they were in some ways enforced by the resource deprivation that the police institution experienced, right? It had to, it didn't have enough money to finance the institution. And so police officers would talk about having to go and search, search for money from capital. Um, and capital obviously were very interested in, in in um, developing these new relationships with the police as they had with the previous, with the military. Um, today, I think it's much harder for the police to substantiate or, or continue the argument that they don't have enough money from the state budget. You know, as I said, in, in 2019, they proposed 120 trillion, which is a massive amount. And successive governments have increased the police budget over and over again. Um, and yet, in the face of this kind of tsunami of public funds, we continue to see relationships between um, big business and the mil and um, police. And what this suggests is, it, you know, that those relationships didn't emerge just because of institutional deprivation or to plug a gap but because these relationships are really institutionalised between um, security forces or military and police and, uh, and capital. I mean, if I'm a hypothetical Indonesian business person paying regular payments amounting to hundreds of thousands of Australian dollars to senior Indonesian police officials, what am I trying to buy exactly? So when I started looking at this, these relationships, um, as I said, police would often frame these relationships in terms of institutional necessity. But when I looked at them closer and looked at how money was used, because if they were for institutional necessity, well, then what you'd expect is that uh, these police officers who have been forced to kind of go and um, fundraise for their stations is that they would go and spend it on the stations. Um, but what I sort of did a bit of forensic accounting in terms of police spending of uh, these illicit transactions, I found that the vast amount of money was actually used to be recirculated within the police. So, um, so this money was not used for policing or small amounts of it was used for policing, but the most amount of money was being used to sort of curry favour and build relationships within the police. For when, when business people talked about the relationships, they would talk about them as a gift or a donation um, usually to the station. Um, but what I what I came increasingly to see was um, 
Capital sees it necessary to continue to have friends within the police. And if they didn't have those friends, they would see that they would become vulnerable to predation. So that the, that the rule of law would turn around and target them. So it's not even necessarily that big business is trying to actually buy something very direct. It's about the need to maintain relationships through the circulation of, this, of these monies or gifts or, or um, opportunities. I mean, so any, I mean, Indonesia Leaks is reporting on this has, has clearly touched a very sensitive spot for the police force. I wonder if you could talk and, you know, don't disclose anything that you, that you don't want to, but what has the response been both from the police force and from the Jokowi administration? Actually, what we want or what we want that this report could be impacted is to push the law enforcement to do their job to continue the investigation and uphold the justice. But the reaction currently is so far from we expected, actually. There aren't many who really try to understand what the report said. What happened more is reactions due to offense and concerns of the parties mentioned in the reports or who want to take advantage of the publications. Apart from the police institution, of course, there are also those two reacted primarily are the two camps who are now competing for the next year's mm. elections, the pres- uh, presidential elections, the incumbent uh, Joko Widodo and Prabowo Subianto. So the issue that was most strongly exhaled to obscure the disclosure of the criminal cases hidden in the report is that the Indonesia Leaks uh, media collaboration team Reports is hoax. So as a hoax, the public does not need to believe it and the police may take action against who create and distribute it. And, and I mean, we, we should really point out that uh, some of these accusations that Indonesia leaks is fake news have actually been coming from senior figures within uh, the Jokowi camp, uh, from PDIP politicians and from some civil society figures who are sort of sympathetic to the administration. Yeah, because uh, like I said, there are people uh, using the report for their own uh, advantage. So only a day or two after the publication is released that one of the Prabowo supporter, Amin Rais, is using the report as, you know, something that to, to attack Jokowi and the uh, national police chief. Uh, so this statement had immediately uh, took by uh, Jokowi camp and saying because Indonesia Leaks report is being used by Prabowo Subianto's camp, it means that Indonesia Leaks is behind uh, Prabowo camp or are supported by Prabowo. Unfortunately, <laughs> this is what happens. So people are easily, you know, distracted from uh, what is the contain or what is actually the report is going to say. Um, Jackie, uh, Tito Karnavian is widely seen as being an ally of, of President Jokowi. In that context, I, I guess I, I'm interested in this question of accountability and how you get it and how the media plays a role in that. In a context where powerful people who have political protection can act with impunity, in your experience researching on Polri and other law enforcement institutions, I mean, do you think that this kind of transparency that investigative journalism can bring 
conservative discipline institutions like Paul Ree. I mean, look, they might not be afraid of the Kapeka or they might not be afraid of an ombudsman, say, but are they afraid of bad press? Um, I mean, firstly, I think uh, your opening remarks about Jokowi and, and um, Patito are bang on in the sense that, yes, they are political allies. And I would also point to the fact that they are in very much the same kind of political animal in that they have emerged um, as political outsiders. I mean, Patito and, and Pat Jokowi, I think, are very much ideologically of the same bent and um, very much men of their own making, emerging in a, in a context in which they were you know, largely isolated from um, some of the sort of the main power factions. Um, that, that at the same time, they've emerged through a process or through a political kind of, through institutions in which they have had to negotiate with those institutions, create allies within those institutions. Um, and so this kind of idea that they are reformers is limited by the fact that they have to work within this, this sort of the reigning status quo. Um, so I, I think Jokowi and, and Pat Tito are very interesting in terms of their um, their friendship is obviously quite, um, they obviously see kinship in each other, you know. Um, and so Pat Tito's fate is very much bound up with Jokowi's. So, you know, and so Pat Tito will uh, certainly be hoping, I think, that that um, Jokowi would be re-elected. I mean, he would be a prime um, uh, candidate to extend his term as Kapolri. Um, so in some ways, their political futures are really bound up together. You mentioned the point that there, there is an absence of accountability for the Indonesian police. And I would reiterate that in the sense that we, that, you know, the, the transition to democratisation did fail to produce um, serious institutional accountability for the Indonesian police. And what institutions were built, like the National Police Commission, um, were very quickly um, rewired, reorganised, um, co-opted in ways um, that would really mean that these institutions would struggle to ever really um, bring accountability for the police. And that's not to suggest that there aren't, there isn't accountability. Uh, the ombudsman I know has had some serious um, capacity over the last few years, but um, the Indonesian police has not been accountable in the ways that we might have hoped um, or are kind of in, in accordance with a democratic Indonesia. So in this regard, um, the media is a really, really important point of accountability. But just like all the other institutions that were supposed to exert the, the accountability over the Indonesian police, the media is just as caught within that contestation. So on one side, we see um, media outlets you know, re quite relentlessly pursuing the Indonesian police and trying to bring about greater accountability. But on the other side, the police and the media have been very close for very long for a very long time you know it, it is not the case that the media has a has a, a hostile or interrogative relationship with the police we would have to ask what media and which media um, the media has in many ways um, feels very dependent upon the police for its news uh, particularly for uh, leaks and or criminal news, um, and in many uh, police stations where I've worked, the police, the media have had a special seat or a special access to uh, the leadership in those in that station. So for a very long time, I mean decades, we've seen a very close relationship between some kinds of media outlets and the Indonesian police. So if we're looking for the media to be 
you know, the the point of accountability over the police, well, the media have also, you know, we can argue the opposite as well, in that the media have been uh, part and parcel of covering up for the police and have been very reliant upon the police um, for their own news and, and are very careful to ensure good relationships with the police and that has shaped their reporting. Any one thing that Indonesians get a lot of from the good media is a lot of information about wrongdoing on the part of, of public officials. But is there a follow-through? Do people get punished for their wrongdoing? And, and, and what's, your, what's your feeling about that? Does, to put it in really blunt terms, does breaking stories actually matter? Yeah, well, if you say that uh, there are many great investigations made by Indonesian media, but I think it is still not enough. I mean, uh, I mentioned before, it is only a few media that can uh, be able to to do investigation because of uh, it needs, uh, you know, more uh, resources to work on this kind of investigation. So we really, really, really need much more investigation. And this initiative, Indonesia Leaks, is one of the uh, one of the solution. I think uh, where we can uh, then other media can also have opportunity to do investiga- investigation. And I think in the Indonesian case, uh, the media cannot work alone. Uh, I think there should be stronger public pressure. Uh, in our experience, some of the, you know, the successful investigative uh, stories that can make good impact is because there are also uh, people work hand in hand within the civil society and not just the media, but also the CSOs, academics and experts. That's why also in Indonesia Leaks, again, uh, there are some CSOs uh, joining uh, the platform to uh, support uh, when it is published, the, the, uh, the reports could give more uh, pressure for the law enforcement. And also we can use the expertise of the CSOs and experts too to, to help uh, the, the media uh, making the investigation. So just finally, and this is our last question, uh, some academics have started talking about the you know, illiberal turn and authoritarian turn in Indonesian politics. But... From your perspective as a journalism practitioner on the ground in Indonesia, I mean, do you feel like the ability of Indonesian media to do critical journalism is is coming under pressure? I mean, is there any possible emerging threat over the horizon that that, that worries you? Uh, yeah, I think it is not only in Indonesia, but everywhere we see the independency of media is threatened by uh, political and business interest. Indonesia Leaks is really... A very good test for for Indonesian. If this uh, a good investigative uh, reports done by a professional uh, media group is being politicized or criminalized, then the journalism will will lose its its honesty, its bravery to to do critical thinking or reporting something critical. And I think it is also happening not just in the media itself but also in the civil society there are many uh, groups which are usually you know critical to the government i think now there are uh, we don't hear much about them anymore this time it is worries me if the media is also losing its critical 
perspective uh, to the government alongside with the CSO. So which which laws or regulations worry you the most in terms of their ability to be misused to, to stifle the press? And if you had to tell the president or the parliament that this law or this law has to go, which ones would they be? Yeah, I think uh, the one that is uh, commonly discussed nowadays is UUITE, Electronic Transaction Law. In some ways, this uh, law is being used by uh, the government or many people to criminalize or putting uh, uh, freedom of expressions and freedom of the press uh, in danger or giving limitation to the press freedom and the freedom of expressions. Because in this law, there is also one uh, clause that says that it doesn't have to be the principal who can report uh, the case, but anybody can report it. Mm. So fundamentally, your your concern is the possibility that sort of fake news laws could be turned against uh, critical media. Yeah, actually, we don't use fake news anymore, but we uh, prefer to use disinformation. Why we, we move from fake news to disinformation? Because it is easily being used by the parties or the government who does not like with the news then they will easily say well this is fake news but actually uh, 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 you know news is news um, there's no fake news uh, so we say that this information because uh, this information is information uh, making uh, intentionally make to make us you know to obstruct from the the main point of the information mm. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but I thought I might just I might just end on a on a brighter note, I guess, and that's that you look at some of the investigative journalism that's um, coming out every week in Indonesia, and often I look at it and I wonder, could this be published in Australia? And for all of the you know challenges that we've talked about today, I, I think it's probably a, a testament to how free things still are in Indonesia that that stories like this. Um, Indonesia Leaks investigation uh, are getting published. So, yeah, just want to say uh, to any, you know, congratulations on the project and um, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the support too, to maybe um, everybody who support uh, investigative journalism, good journalism and transparency and accountability in Indonesia. Jackie as well, thanks so much for um, taking the time to speak to us. I know you guys have both got packed schedules and I really appreciate uh, you uh, chatting with us today. No worries, thanks very much. Fascinating um, conversation. Thanks so much. And that's episode two of Audio Pelago. If you're listening to this at SoundCloud or at the New Mandala website, remember that you can also subscribe to all of New Mandala's audio releases at iTunes or through the Apple Podcast app. Until next month, thanks for listening.